Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Today, we're bringing back the CEO and founder of the Global Autism Project, Molly Olapini, along with the organization's head of university and training programs, Anne Byrne. For the past several months, Anne and I have been working together on a very special project. We've developed Responsive Skills Training, a curriculum for entry-level autism service providers that teaches the required skills for the RBT, IBT, and ABAT credentials. This course was co-created with the autistic community to transform the way in which services are provided across the world. Our committee of contributors included prominent self-advocates such as Temple Grandin and Stephen Shore, different family members like parents and siblings, and a wide range of professionals, including speech therapists, occupational therapists, and transition specialists. Our purpose with Responsive Skills Training, or RST for short, is to give entry-level service providers a more well-rounded understanding of autism by hearing directly from those with lived experiences. In today's conversation, we discuss why we decided to create RST, the needs of the international community, the importance of listening to autistic voices, reforming applied behavior analysis to include neurodiversity-affirming practices, and the process of co-creating RST with a committee of contributors. After the conversation with Molly and Anne, you'll also hear testimonies from several RST contributors about why they decided to join this project. These were recorded in the field during our last Skill Corps volunteer trip to Kenya in March. In this episode, discover what's possible when you work kinder, not harder. To learn more about the Global Autism Project's responsive skills training, please visit globalautismproject.org forward slash RST. We appreciate your time. If you enjoy this podcast and you'd like to support our mission, please take just a few seconds to share it with one person who you think will find value in it too. You can also follow us on Instagram at Autism Podcast, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Global Autism Project, and join our online community on Mighty Networks at community.globalautismproject.org. And now I present you Molly Ola Pinney and Anne Byrne. Hello, Molly and Anne. Welcome back to the show. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's always great to be back. Yeah. So for our listeners who don't know you guys, could you give a brief introduction? Molly, you want to go first? Sure. My name is Molly Olapini, and I'm the founder and CEO of the Global Autism Project. Great. And Anne? Hi, I'm Anne Byrne, and I am the head of university and training programs at the Global Autism Project. All right. And we are here today to talk about our new training curriculum, the Responsive Skills Training. You know, and as an organization, we've been talking about creating this curriculum for years. And actually, and you've created an RBT training years ago. Right. Yeah. When was that, just for context? Oh, gosh. It was about six years ago. 
Okay. So great. And so that was our kind of first iteration at this training. And you know, a lot can happen in six years in an organization. Molly, you know that very, very well. <laughs> so let's talk about why now? Why create this new version? Molly, could you speak to what we've learned that is needed in response to the needs of the international community? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the biggest answer to the question, we did think about doing this six years ago, or we did start it six years ago. When We look at the dates on the files and we didn't finish it, obviously, never really gained traction. And that was for a number of reasons. One, priority shifted. Two, the market quickly became quite saturated with RBT trainings. And at the Global Autism Project, we never want to be the organization who's doing the same thing as everyone else. Whatever it is that we do, we like to do it a little bit differently. We like to have a clear reason why you should do it with our organization. You know, from our skill core program to our business coaching programs, everything has its own sort of special flavor. And the RBT training six years ago was really going to go on the market as an RBT training. It had a little bit of an angle to it in that we had video from around the world and we had examples from around the world. But it it didn't feel like unique enough in a way. And so it felt like it was another one on the market. And the other thing is six years ago, the BACB was doing all of the international certification. That has now shifted. There are two other organizations doing the certification for people outside of the U.S. And so with that shift, it felt like a time that maybe we re-examine this a little bit. Those certifications have a level that is similar to an RBT, a tech level credential. And so we created this training to meet the needs of the community outside, largely outside of the U.S. and also within the U.S. And so then as we started to do that, we started to see that, yes, there's a need for representation. Yes, there's a need for examples, global examples. You know, we're often asked, what does autism look like outside the U.S.? And the question, you know, we answer that with um, autism, you know, so (laughs) humans are humans all over the world. You know, what shifts is how people are treated around the world. And so Mm -hmm. I think that became a bit more of our focus. There's also been, I always feel like a dinosaur saying this, but really quite incredible advances in technology, even in six years, certainly in 20 years. And so that was another thing that we felt like the technology platforms that were available were more conducive to what we wanted to be able to offer, you know, where we can have quizzes and we can have videos to stop and we can do certificates and those sort of things. So that's what had us kind of bring it back from that perspective. And then of course, the conversations that we've had and listened to, you've had, Rachel, with the autistic community. We're just learning and listening and learning. And so as we were doing that, we saw this major disconnect between the autistic community and the ABA community. And more importantly, we just saw a major misunderstanding. We saw that people were just unwilling to engage in conversation. And those who were willing to learn from the autistic community didn't really have a resource of where to go. Yes, yes, yes. Everything Molly is <laughs> saying. And I think our, you know, our initial RBT training was, you know, like it was good. It was fine. It was like a good, like B plus effort, I think. <laughs> but I think what, you know, 
looking back and, you know, also hindsight is twenty twenty, right? If you're not looking back and seeing things that you can change, then you're not growing enough, probably. So looking back, though, you know, like here was this training that was like technically fine. But knowing what we know now, which should be more than we knew six years ago, and hearing the voices of the autistic community, we were talking about a methodology that's used almost exclusively for individuals with autism, and we didn't have enough autistic voices involved. The Global Autism Project, by the way, has always been an organization that has listened to autistic voices. We've had autistic employees for ever, I want to say, <laughs> like, like, like almost since the inception, since it was like... Yeah, since we've had employees. Yeah, basically it was, it was Molly and it was me and it was <laughs> one other employee who had autism, like when we were just a scrappy young organization. Since we've had employees, we've had autistic employees, but they were involved in other projects than this. And and it didn't have the kind of like rich autistic informed curriculum that it could have and it should have. So looking back with our 2023 eyes, it could be a lot better thinking about, you know, like what the needs of the community are. And what we talk about the conversation between ABA professionals and the autistic community that conversation is largely happening among behavior analysts and autistic self-advocates. So that's largely happening at a certain professional level. So those people have been in the field for a while. Those people have been practicing for a while. Those people have a level of coursework and experience. If we could get people having those conversations and thinking about the science and the methodologies right at the entry level. Because what is happening a lot of the time is that they're involved at the entry level and it's more like job training, like, okay, do this thing, get this done. Here's how you do it, go. And not a lot of thoughtful process about why we're doing what we're doing, what the needs of the community are. And, you know, we don't use punishment. Why don't we use punishment? Or ABA is often talked about as an autism treatment. What does that mean? If you're neurotypical and you're working with someone with autism, what does that mean? And what does it mean to be neurodiversity affirming? Having those conversations at the entry level means that the paraprofessionals are going to be in better positions to advocate. They're going to be in better positions to make good decisions because they're spending most of the time with the client. And what's happening in the field is a lot of the people who go into the field and are put in difficult positions right away, either because behavior analysts aren't neurodiversity affirming and want to have programming that is more curative in nature or uses more aversives or doesn't acknowledge the dignity of the individual, instead of being really fierce advocates, those RBTs quit and leave the field because that's their experience of what applied behavior analysis is. They say, this is applied behavior analysis, and all the autistic self-advocates are saying this is what applied behavior analysis is, and I'm getting confirmation that they're correct, and so I'm out. And that's a tremendous loss for our field. I want those folks back in our field. I want them advocating 
Because if they leave our field, then that is what our field is. Hmm. So teaching people from the entry level position, you know, work kinder, not harder. I started as a line therapist over 25 years ago. And it was a very, very different world. It was very compliance-based. It was very much like, you know, sit here with this kid. And when you say, touch your nose, they're going to touch their nose or both of you are going to die trying. Like that That was the sort of mentality. And it was really miserable for everybody involved. And it was a very, very different way to work. What appealed to me about it was that it was not punishment-based. So I liked the reinforcement aspect of it. But, you know, my experience was very, very different than what my experience evolved to be. And again, if you're not growing and changing, then you're not learning. And then kind of what's the point? Like the beauty of this field is that you should be growing and changing. You should look back on what you did six years ago and say like, ooh, that wasn't what I'd do today. Yeah. And and I can relate a lot to what you're saying because I started out in the field as a behavior therapist before there was the RBT credential. And I didn't have the training that this curriculum offers. I wish I did. And I think what makes this so special also is, you know, the name responsive skills training. And I remember Molly, when you first told me about the name. You're like, I don't know, we'll just call it responsive skills training or something. And then it just stuck (laughs) (laughs) because it makes so much sense. Like what we're doing is training that entry-level therapist to be responsive to cultural differences, to be responsive to the individual and be responsive to whatever situation is happening in that session. And another thing that sets us apart related to that is we're trying to foster these critical thinking skills, which, you know, has been one of our our values really as an organization in any training we've done internationally. How can we help make that person that we're training able to take these skills and run with whatever, you know, challenge or problem they're faced with in the future? So there's no dependency there. And going back to like the needs of the international community, I know one common discussion that would always come up with our partners is that, you know, what is being trained from the U.S. side is very U.S. centric. Mm -hmm. So the assessments, the programs, even the materials that are being described, they have something different in different countries. So there was always this kind of tweaking of you know, well, how is this going to make sense in what I'm doing? So that's what we're trying to do also with RST to make it more general and more applicable across cultures. And with these in the field videos, people around the world can see themselves in the training. And I think that is so important. Mm -hmm. And some of the things that I put into the RST training were things that it really took me decades to sort of like try and put into words And I remember when I first started in the field in like the 1990s, the general thinking was that ABA was a curative model, like ABA is a treatment for autism. And now I kind of like bump up against that phrasing. And one of the issues with the medical model is I think that we tend to think of it that way. 
And now I, you know, when I coach parents or when I talk to other professionals, one thing I emphasize is because sometimes I'll get parents asking me, like, is this behavior, you know, because of autism or, you know, and I'll say, well, you know, maybe and maybe not, but autism is a disability to the extent that it disables. So if your kid really likes trains, is that disabling? Does it interfere with the job of being a kid? Does it interfere with growing and learning and playing and making friends? So like, not necessarily. And it might actually be an interest that would provide a context for making friends. So if they really like trains, let's, you know, bring them to the transit museum. In New York City, you know, we have such an elaborate uh, subway system that, you know, trains are a very common. <laughs> and that's because we we have a, a train that if you're going to be into a system that involves maps and colors and numbers and letters, then like we've got you. Like we've, we've got a, a system that is really cool for all that academia. So, you know, it could provide a context. It could provide a great leisure activity. Special interests can be a wonderful passion. We don't restrict things just for the sake of restricting them. You know, I heard about a preschool teacher who, because a child in her classroom, I heard about this from another teacher, um, had a very intense interest in the color yellow, removed all of the yellow from her classroom. So my first question was why? And my second question was how? How do you take all it seems like it seems like more effort to take all the yellow out of your classroom <laughs> than, than to just deal with it, you know? And so my personal inclination would be to kind of always give him the yellow thing or like, you know, make more things yellow or encourage, you know, or talk more about yellow because I don't think an interest in yellow is particularly disabling. But that, you know, thinking about it that way, instead of always looking through this lens of, is it autism, then it's bad. Looking at it through, is this an actual obstacle? Mm-hmm. then let's remove the obstacle. You know, really teaching at the entry-level position that we're not in the business of changing people. We're in the business of removing obstacles. And part of removing obstacles is figuring out what the obstacles are. That's what's really needed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That kind of mindset shift in how we look at autism and how we understand it Molly, could you talk about how we have a you know very interesting opportunity here to even shape the future of acceptance internationally? Well, I think the biggest thing that we wanted to do is we wanted to really provide context around what is ABA, who is this community, what are their thoughts? I think there's so much for us to learn. And you know, we've worked internationally for 20 years, and the opportunities internationally have increased exponentially. That being said, you can still go into a community. I was on a call a couple of days ago with a parent in a country who said, people here do not know what autism is. The locally accepted belief is that the children are possessed, that they have a curse put on them. And so if you're working within that context locally, and then you're going online and all you're finding is this kind of like rigid, strict 
sort of compliance-based ABA, you're kind of going like, what are my options? What do I do next? And oh, this is a problem. And so I think, you know, with this training, as Anne said, with those entry-level professionals and Part of our plan is to make this available to parents and professionals around the world so that they just understand autism from another context. And importantly, the perspective of the autistic community. Knowing the perspective of the autistic community makes all the difference in the world in our practice. And the teacher you're talking about lived in New York for a long time. And I'm like, what's the plan with yellow cabs? You know, like... (laughs) Yeah. Like maybe you're going to remove all the yellow from your classroom, but what's the plan when you go outside? You cannot avoid yellow in New York. And so, or the world. And I think, you know, just really learning from the experience of that child who had yellow removed from them. And there's some very real conversations as part of this training. You know, people were part of this training from a place of wanting to not only do better, which is very important, but fundamentally shift the way in which we engage in this field. And I think that's the part that I get really excited about is that kind of fundamental shift is that, you know, I wish we had recorded the early conversations about this training. I wish I had recorded the conversations that I had with some of our autistic contributors. And, you know, certainly we can go back and have them, but some of those kind of aha moments and some of the things that we wanted to make sure were preserved is that like this training is really, truly from a place of love, from a place of respect, and really just to provide that context so that people understand that autism is not a problem. It's the way in which we treat those who are autistic. And that's what we have the most control over as practitioners. And so to Anne's point, if entry-level practitioners are learning this, if entry-level practitioners are learning that we teach no, that people can say no, and that it's important to respect that, Mm -hmm. we're going to get better outcomes, not only for adults, but we're going to get better outcomes for our practitioners. And we have a huge issue in this field that we're working to address as an organization right now that is we're accepting a 60% turnover rate is okay. We're accepting that people stay in this field for a few months and then get burnt out and leave. Well, of course they're getting burnt out and leave if they are forcing small children to do things, right? So if we can address that in the training itself, I really think that this training can be part of addressing a bigger issue not only having more informed, more competent, more responsive, that's, there's that word again, more responsive practitioners. That's why it's stuck. <laughs> there you go. It was such a working title. It was like, let's call it this for now because yeah. it's going to be more than RBT. <laughs> How still poor happened too, I think. But <laughs> just call it this for now. It's been 12 years. Um, but really, you know, not only to make sure they're more responsive, but that also means you're more effective. And when we measure efficacy in terms of what allows this person to live the life they want to live, mm-hmm. that's when we see an entire shift. You know? yeah. So, and we get to internationally, we get to teach that this is the norm that when you are creating ABA programs, one of the first things you do is consult with the autistic community. You know, it's not easy to find autistic adult communities around the world, but that's changing too. We were just in Kenya 
And we spoke with many autistic adults who shared the experience of growing up autistic in Kenya. And it was just such a valuable perspective to learn from. And I think we'll probably hopefully feature some of those voices on the podcast in the future, but oh my goodness, just, you know, but if we teach that the standard is, if you're providing services in any way to the autistic community, they are done with not only for the autistic community. And that's what we've taught internationally that we do with and not for our international community. And this is just a natural shift as an organization, as we've learned, as we've grown, as we've evolved, to do with and not for the autistic community. And it has made the organization stronger. It has made the community that we've been able to cultivate, the friendships that are happening so much stronger, so much more powerful. Yes, absolutely. And Let's talk a little bit about the process now, how we developed RST, because as you're saying, Molly, you know, it came from lots of learning and listening. And, you know, since starting the podcast now, we're coming up on three years now. It's I know. <laughs> it's nuts to think about this month. So, you know, when I first started doing the podcast, I was very much stuck in this identity of being a BCBA and what that meant and how I needed to defend the field you know, at all costs to any kind of disparaging comments. They teach us that in the training to be a BCBA. And so anytime anyone would criticize the field, autistic people, you know, I would get very defensive. And I was like, I'm not going to bring them on the podcast. I don't want to hear it. No, no, no. They don't align with our values. And it took, it took an awakening, like, I had to shake myself. I mean, there were many things that led to this realization, but I remember the moment when, and I, I think I called you, Molly, and I was like, what have I been doing? Like, I've been hurting people. I now, now I'm listening. Now I hear what they meant by trauma. And you were like, yeah, good. Okay. Just sit with that. Okay. And it, it took me a week of, you know, feeling sick. Like I wanted to, throw up. I couldn't sleep. I was crying, thinking about all of the clients that I used to serve and how I could have maybe harmed them. And so it came from this place of feeling a need to take responsibility and do something about that. So yes, I could be sad and feel guilty, but like that's not going to change anything. Mm -hmm. And so then I realized, well, here we have this podcast and what a gift to now be able to elevate these voices that I was silencing before. And I'm like, when I think about it, there's still a bit of shame there. But, you know, I think it's important to talk about what I went through because I think there are a lot of people in the field who hear things and pretend they didn't hear it because they don't want to face it. And so it hurts and it's uncomfortable and there's this cognitive dissonance. but you know, what do you do after you get over that? And so, you know, with um, this new perspective of now, yes, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the criticisms of ABA. Come on the podcast, share everything. It really kind of shifted, I think, this idea of do with, not for, and what I was kind of bringing to the table in my contribution. And so, you know, over the next couple of years, we developed this online community, which is now a beautiful space for people to really share ideas without judgment. And from the community, we built relationships. And I'm bringing all this up because this has been a big part of our 
process in developing RST with the committee of contributors that we've included. And so, you know, fast forward to when we decided we would actually get going with RST, we wanted to include everyone's feedback and, you know, had them evaluate the content that was already there. And I want to bring this to you now to talk about what that process was like for you also. And maybe you could even give a bit of details in how we made sure everyone's voice was heard. Well, I'm going to be honest. Actually, like I have a similar experience to you, like, you know, as a BCBA, you know, like you are trained to be like, oh, defend the field. The field is great. Every, you know, like we're saviors. Yay, yay, yay. ABA. And to be fair, I've been in the field for a really long time. So I've seen a lot of sort of cultural shifts within the field. And I think that, you know, when I first started in the field, it was very compliance based. And there was a lot of emphasis on forced eye contact compliance. And then that shifted in like sort of the early 2000s as like pairing became more popular. But there was still an emphasis on this like kind of curative model. So there was a shift, but the shift was not complete. So that shift is sort of referred to as like old ABA versus new ABA, an emphasis on discrete trial teaching and, you know, more compliance-based methods where functional communication might be brought in a little bit later versus an emphasis on pairing, functional language being brought in as first, what they used to call the verbal behavior model. That was the old ABA versus new ABA. The new ABA, by the way, was not particularly new because in the 1990s, the Kegels had pivotal response training, which was very similar to the verbal behavior model. The vocabulary was a teeny bit different, but it's very similar in terms of, you know, a more play-based model, like using a lot of natural environment teaching. So there was like a cultural shift, to be fair. So when people would say oh, ABA is, you know, robotic. And instead of seeing the good points that were being made, I was sort of shutting it down and I was all hashtag not all ABA. (laughs) And, you know, like, oh, no, 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 no. That was old ABA. Now new ABA is completely different. And I really wasn't asking myself critically, like, is it? Like, are you really listening? Are you leaving space for people to talk about a painful experience that they had or that their child had. And a lot of these conversations took place online, which I think is kind of an easier space to be insensitive, unfortunately, to like sort of say something stupid like, oh, not all ABA and like, oh, the new one is much better and blah, blah, blah. And I remember having a conversation with someone in person. And I think this is what shifted my thoughts about it. And she said, ABA didn't work for my child. And I thought to myself, well, one of the dimensions of ABA is being effective. So did the programs not change behavior? I didn't say this to her, but I was thinking it in my head. And she said, he learned a lot of language. He did this, he did that. And her definition of worked was that he still had autism. And I was like, this is such a failure of what we're supposed to be doing 
if she doesn't think that it worked. Mm -hmm. And I remember having another conversation with a behavior analyst and she and I had gone to the same program. Well, we went to different programs in the same university for our master's degree. I was in the early childhood program and she was in the ABA program. And we were talking about her professor. We had the same professor for ABA. And at that time, I was 22 and really, I was very deep in my neurotypical bias and was just learned about ABA. So I walked into my applied behavior analysis, very into this whole idea of a curative model, walked into my applied behavior analysis one class And I was basically like, on what page is the cure for autism? Like, that was where my mind was at. Mm -hmm. So I raised my hand in class one day and I said to the professor, well, I heard that ABA could cure autism. And he was kind about it. But this is definitely not the first time you had this question. (laughs) And he said, we're not in the business of curing autism. I said, we're in the business of treating behavior. And, you know, autism is defined by behaviors. So sure, you know, like you could treat enough behaviors, you can increase enough behaviors and decrease enough behaviors so that this person would not test on the autism spectrum. But that's not really what we're doing here. And that really resonated with me. I was like, wow, that really isn't what we're doing here. And then that still resonates with me. And, you know, I think about that now in terms of like, we're removing obstacles. But the conversation I have with this teacher She said, I really didn't like that professor because he said, you know, we're not in the business of curing autism. I said, I said, that's weird because I had the same, she wasn't in my class. I said, I had the same question. And did you hear the rest of that speech though? Because it's really incredible. She said, no, I stopped listening. So I think that those like two moments were the real aha moments of like, oh, we really need to do better. So the whole process of, uh, now that I got a little sidetracked, so the process of RSD, I was really worried. I was a little scared that it was going to be a lot of people who did not believe that ABA could be reformed. Hmm. That was my biggest concern about working with a committee. I was committed to doing it, but my concern was that if you don't have a core belief that ABA can be reformed, it's really hard to present a training. Like that's a diplomatic way of putting it. I was just a little like worried about that it was gonna be tense. And what I learned from the experience is that that was like my bias and my fear and my own like neurotypical BCBA ridiculousness, because it was actually an amazing experience. And the conversations that I had with committee members, their contributions were incredible. And we spoke about some contributions, and they were so clear on their why, why they were here. And the first phase, we still had all of the RBT training that we had developed. The sort of, it was fine. It was vanilla. It was fine. You know, it was okay. So we presented that to them and we presented all of the additional curriculum that we wanted to develop and asked for anything that needed to be included. 
And I also asked whether or not this particular content they felt could be responsibly presented by a neurotypical professional. Because since I was responsible for doing a lot of the lecture stuff, a lot of the sort of nuts and bolts of the methodologies and things like that, I didn't want to overstep. So there were things like the sensory experience of autistics that I I didn't feel was something that I could be informed about. So I was a little bit concerned about, you know, is this something that someone with that experience would want to, you know, step in on? And we were really clear, like, we might not be able to cut things out. We can include as much as we want, but there is required content. And the whole process went really much smoother than I thought. And I think that that was the biggest lesson for me, because they do sort of teach us, like, you know, the, oh, the the self-advocacy community is fighting us. You're like, we're, we're in a fight, you know, and... The biggest lesson for me was how amazingly it was collaborative. It was helpful. It was amazing. Like the people who participated in this process wanted ABA to be to reform. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to hurt me personally. They didn't want to punish me for doing ABA. They wanted people to be treated with dignity and respect. That's all anybody wants. So this whole like fearful idea of, you know, like, oh, and and I think like there is a lot of fear among the different groups that are fighting each other of like, oh, you know, autistic self-advocates are trying to take away services and they're trying to take away, like, there was never that vibe. And I think that there was like a, I hate to admit it, but there was, I was a little nervous that everyone would hate what I was doing. Wah, wah. <laughs> but like, you know, but <laughs> right. I know, call, call the ambulance. But like, <laughs> but there is that personal bias of like worrying about getting your feelings hurt. And, the, and, and it, but it was a wonderfully supportive and amazing process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember we recently had a meeting about a conference and there were two committee members at our meeting. And I said, oh, you know, like I just did the technical stuff. I did the boring part. Like, you know, like BCBAs are a dime a dozen. The committee members that makes this special. And the two committee members were like, Anne, like (laughs) like yours. And and like, (laughs) like gave me this speech that just lifted me up for the whole day. Yes. (laughs) I mean, not that that's necessary, but. What I'm trying to say is that it feels like a big job. It feels like involving the autistic community and listening to self-advocates is going to be painful. And sitting with that trauma in the beginning can be. Sitting with the reality of what it looks like when dignity and respect are not present, that really can be. But the rewards are so great. And once you get to a point of community, it's beautiful. It's fantastic. And I think that a lot of that is because we've cultivated and we've created this space with our community members to be respectful and that no one is made wrong. And it's just, you know, a different way of doing things, of looking at things. And everyone who was part of the committee. Yeah, like you said, there was a reason they were part of the project. 
there was for many of them something very personal. Um, and mm. so, you know, the committee consisted of, yes, self-advocates, but also family members, parents, and siblings mm-hmm. whose loved ones went through ABA. And, you know, they had some some things they wanted to change about it. And also we had different professionals. So not only BCBAs, we had SLPs, occupational therapists, transition specialists. So I think that's another thing that makes this training really special is that it wasn't just BCBAs and self-advocates. You have this whole, like anyone who's connected to autism, really. And so with this committee of such a diverse range of people and contributors, we were able to bring in their lived experiences. So Anne, you're, you know, the brains behind the the whole technical application part, and you were able to incorporate everyone's feedback. And the end result is now six modules of this training that will allow people to sit for the RBT exam, the ABAT exam, and the IBT exam all those entry-level positions. And also what's included in the training is this module and they're intertwined and placed between the theory part, but these conversations with our contributors. And Mm -hmm. from here, people can listen and get that firsthand experience of what it's like to have that sensory overload. We have a conversation about that to supplement the theory that you're teaching. There's a roundtable conversation from parents talking about how to empower parents in doing parent coaching, how to bridge that gap between professionals and family members. There's another roundtable about mental health, about collaboration, about what autism looks like across the lifespan. So really one of our other goals with RST is to help that practitioner, that person who is providing these services, look at the person that they're working with as a person holistically Mm -hmm. to give them a more well-rounded view of what they're experiencing, what their life is going to be like in five years, 10 years. We also talk about, you know, the elderly population. Right. So yeah, this is, you know, something we're, we're so excited about. Like this is I feel like years and years of, as Molly said, love and and sweat and tears that have been poured into this curriculum that we're now able to offer the public. And we're just thrilled. It's a really rich training. And the reality is that BTs are, they're really in the thick of it. They're in the thick of a lot of the parental stress. They're in the thick of the client stress, you know, it's a difficult position to be in because they may not be able to design programming, but they're responsible for what happens for 90% of the service hours. Yeah, And I think that the fact that RBTs don't design programming is how a lot of the training is geared. But the reality is because of that 90% of service hours when they're there, relying on them for ideas is sort of, they are such an important resource to the behavior analyst. Mm -hmm. And so really creating this foundation of that critical thinking and making sure that they have the right lens 
is critical for having services that are respectful and acknowledge client dignity. Yes, definitely. Okay, so to wrap up, if you could have just one takeaway that you want anyone who goes through this training to have, what would it be? Work kinder, not harder. I think that one of the biggest mistakes I made when I was first starting my career is I wanted to be really productive. And so I treated every session like my last. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was unnecessarily stressful for me and way too stressful for the client. That was a ridiculous amount of pressure to put on my clients. And one thing that I emphasize a lot in the RST training is don't sacrifice client dignity for the appearance of productivity. Mm -hmm. So work kinder, not harder. You're playing the long game. And happy, relaxed, and engaged is way more important than busy. Thanks, Anne. Molly? Yeah, I think my sort of one-sentence takeaway is to do with and not for the autistic community. You know, I think one of the things that we are doing with this training is shifting the paradigm of what it means to work together, of what it means to listen together, of what it means to co-create. And when we start doing that, when we start listening, when we start really getting each other's perspectives, everything's only going to improve. Most importantly, the lives of the people that we say we're here to serve. Yes, absolutely. And so this training is officially available on our website, and I will put a link to that in our show notes so people can go check it out for themselves. All right. Thank you so much. Can I also say that I remember the moment in which we were like, and we'll call it responsive skills training or something. (laughs) And then I talked with you about it, Rachel, and you about it, Anne, and you were both like, yes, let's do it. And then next thing I knew, I was like watching these videos of these beautiful trainings and these beautiful interviews. And just, I'm so impressed and so excited by what you all with the committee created. It is truly something really special. So I just want to, you know, not not step over your contributions to all of this. I mean, it's not an easy thing to build an online training. Logistically, it's not an easy thing. From a human perspective, (laughs) it's an easy thing to listen to the voices of 30 people. But logistically, this was a lot to manage. And you both did it and you did it in a way that just, I'm not going to say surprise me because you both do such outstanding work, but just, I'm just so excited about the place to which you brought this training and what it means for the future of this field. You know, when you're creating something at scale like this, we can truly shift this entire field and therefore the experience of the entire world with the autistic community. So thank you both for that. Thank you, Molly. It has really been an honor to be able to do it. Yes. And and fun. I love working with Anne. So I'm excited for more, you know, trainings that we're going to create in the future. So this is great. You're a blast. (laughs) Yeah, I love it. I get to use my fancy headphones and my fancy microphone. (laughs) There you go. All right. Well, thank you both for um, chatting today. And yeah, like I said, everything will be available in our show notes. I'm Andrew Bennett. I live in Houston, Texas, in the United States. I'm the BCABA. 
a board-certified assistant behavior analyst, and an autistic, autistic self-advocate. I've uh, combined my professional experience as an RBT leading up to my certification, as well as my lived experience uh, with autism to uh, help children in early intervention mostly. But then more recently, I've worked with adults in college setting to improve social, professional, and academic functioning. I currently am involved with Global Autism Project as a self-advocate, contributing to projects like responsive skills training. And I'm looking forward to also exploring more in the areas of uh, neurodiversity, affirming uh, care, and expanding on my practice, and potentially going back to school, and we'll see where that goes. I see neurodiversity-affirming approaches as ways of doing ABA or whatever other practice you are involved in, but particularly ABA, in the way that honors and respects and even highlights in a positive way via clients of differences. And anything that has the underlying uh, attitude of whole personhood and that the person who is being given the services isn't just somebody to be treated or fixed or changed fundamentally. Behavior can be changed, but the person cannot be at their core. This was a project that excited me enough to just jump on in less than two days of notice and because I saw that a lot of the experiences I had in my life, good and bad and everywhere in between, as a self-advocate, as a clinician, as an inspiring uh, behavior analyst, could be put to good use to make the field better and more compassionate, to improve the care of the individuals that we already have, but also to set a good groundwork of trust in the field for the future. And it would ensure that whatever practices that we may have engaged in in the past that were not uh, neurodiversity affirming can start to be phased out. And I personally am looking forward to the wider distribution of the RST. And I, the amount that I've looked over so far, would love for this to become mandatory training for all RBTs throughout the world, perhaps, and whatever the local equivalent is. My name is Maria Chan. I'm the director and founder of Centro Enigma in Ecuador that has served children ages 1 to 10 for the past eight years. And I'm also the founder of a nonprofit organization. It's called Algorithm. And with that organization, we're gathering parents and the community to start awareness since 2020. Having this available in Spanish will have access to parents, to professionals, to update also the clinical field of psychology. If you go to universities in Ecuador, the only little piece that they learn about behavior is the basic conductism class, which is like a few hours. And they don't have classes about autism. And I think this will open many doors to see the real side above the entire world of autism, of scientific validated fields that they can use all the tools in order to apply in the day-to-day -day life. I feel this is more revolutionary. It's like we pick everything and put it in one whole place. And it's innovation, revolution, and a lot of what I see is in the day-to-day -day life, when you go to university, you only get theory. And 
you are landing right now this year to the 2024 mm-hmm. year, applying technology, applying life experience, applying people's voices and say, okay, I hear you and we're building something that can fit to everyone. And I think not a university has can make this or has it or another certification type of classes have this, that oh, it's all integrated. My name is Alexis Saviri. I am from Boston, Massachusetts, USA. I am a sibling advocate of a lovely adult with autism named Anthony. I have worked in home services, summer camp settings and school settings as a behavior therapist and have been working towards becoming a BCBA. And I am now starting a business as an affiliate of the Global Autism Project. And that will provide support to parents, siblings, caregivers in incredible ways. As a sibling of someone with autism, I think it's incredibly important that we educate as best we can in the clearest, most concise way and allow others to understand how to respond to a person's behavior that they might not have seen before or understood. I think that what exists right now for training might not include that wholesome component that this one does. I think it means a lot to me to take my experiences as a sibling and provide more people with a better understanding of that relationship. I think it's important for both employees and family members to take a training along these lines so that they are most equipped to be a safe space for a person with autism and know as much as they can. I was lucky enough to participate in the roundtable discussion where we went over the multidisciplinary approach amongst a team of providers alongside families together. And it was just amazing being able to see each person's perspective and that there is that common goal that we all just want to do the very best that we can for the individuals that we work with. And just being part of that and seeing the passion in each and every one of the the people in that discussion and how much they could contribute to it just felt overwhelmingly (laughs) grateful uh, just to be a part of it. Hi, I'm Laura Leonard Beckley. I live in Queens, New York, where I was born and raised. I am a special educator, a school psychologist, and a board-certified behavior analysis. This is also my 30th year in the field. I am a member of Global Autism Project, a Skill Corps alum, part of their affiliate program. And I am the founder and CEO of ABA Tree, which is in Rockaway Park, Queens, My passion in the field is training and mentorship, and I mentor, I think right now I have seven people going for their BCBA, and uh, I'm really excited to be part of the projects here. Initially, in the field, there wasn't any formal training. If you were going to be the behavior tech or the paro or the teacher assistant, whatever label that you were given, so things were created by individuals, and then there was a big explosion in the field. And there became more certifications, and then there were RBT trainings available everywhere. We test them out with different people to get feedback, and everyone felt like there was something lacking. I had people that were siblings, I had parents, I had people who wanted to be RBTs take it, and I myself many times fell asleep watching them. (laughs) There has been such an explosion in this field, 
and it's been a huge concern of mine that we've lost the human side of it. We forgot that we are working with other human beings, and that's why I was very excited to hear about this and, and hope that it's going to make a better impact on how people are trained and bring up a, a little bit more support for those that are BCBAs. We, we really have to do some good PR because we have uh, not a very good reputation right now, and I believe that we still have a lot to offer. If we start from the assumption that everyone that participates in this field or is touched by someone with autism, that they want to do the best that they can. They want to do a good job. They want to help the most that they can. This gives us the opportunity to give that knowledge. When we know better, we do better. And I think we've kind of been stagnant in the field because we have all this experience. There's been so many years and we have evolved. And I'm very excited to see that we can expand that knowledge to people that just haven't received it yet. My name is Sangeeta Jain, and I'm a parent of a about 24-year-old young man with autism. And I run a center in India, northern part of India, Chandigarh, Sorum, since now almost 14 years. I'm executive director and principal over there. And we have 172 students from age group of 2 to 40. So we do provide services across the lifespan and I'm very happy to be part of it. I think structured teaching and learning process is very important as for any child. So is for any professional or for a parent because half knowledge, you know, whenever we have, is the worst thing that we can impart to anyone. So in India, we do have, you know, some knowledge about it. It is getting on to that awareness part. But still, there's a long way to go because the minute we know something about it, we feel that, oh, I know about it. And everyone mm. becomes the teacher. Everyone wants to share their own experience. And I love about RST is we're still basing on the experiences but yet getting into the structured learning process, which is going to be awesome. We sometimes do not have a very big picture. We generally tend like, okay, this is a two-year-old. We need to teach him some play skills. We need to teach him some kind of academics, literacy programs, which are all important because the first idea of any parent is like, I want to see my child into the mainstream. And the mainstream schools are usually centered around like academics, literacy programs, and the most essential parts of the building blocks that we would need in the later stages of life are lost. So somehow I think then we're talking about the lifespan we need to think about what my child needs to learn at this point when he's 25, not just only two. So this is what is most important to think about a big picture because, you know, autism will not end when your child is 18. And that's what we are struggling right now, looking at the opportunities for the employment, residential services and everything. Whom are they going to live with? What are they going to do? What are going to be their leisure activities? Everything. Not just only the employment, but I think the overall. We should not get fixated when we're talking about the adults, just one part. Mm. It has to be everything because if we're not talking about the leisure services, how are they going to take care of their mental health? What's going to be there? Like, yes, that's very important. Everyone is evolving. 
So has to be the programs as well. It cannot be what we started 20 years back. And I think we all learn from our experiences, especially when things do not go well. Those are the major learning experiences. When things go well, it's like we can definitely pat our backs and say like, oh, this really worked. But to fill in all everyone as is saying those pieces, whatever didn't go well, those are the major life experiences that we need to learn from and start, you know, otherwise there'll be just experiences, one experience to the other. Unless and until we learn from them and we have a plan to execute, those would be perfect learning experiences. Otherwise, we will be moving from one experience to another and there will be no learning into it. Mm. So I think this is going to be huge where we are all learning from each other experiences and also putting into something more beautiful. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Are you a professional in the field of autism services? Do you want to learn directly from the autistic community about how to make your practice neurodiversity affirming? Sign up for responsive skills training today at globalautismproject.org forward slash RST. Let's work together to transform how the world relates to autism. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.